Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you all had a beautiful holidays and a happy new year. We are back with new episodes of An Actor Despairs. Today's guest is Amar Chata Patel. We heard to talk about his Disney show Willow and all the amazing things he's got coming up. They're going to be coming out really soon. He's a great guy and I had a great time and I'm really excited to be back. And Amar, thank you so much for doing this and it's a great episode. All right, guys, lots of love. Amar Chata Patel, welcome to An Actor Despairs. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. It's great to have you here, man. It's you're you got an incredible look, but I know you had a really bad night with some laptop issues. So I really appreciate you being here. You know, despite the stress of I, I know I know the peril of of laptop, you know, technology issue. issues. Singular, well. singular issue, and I feel like the issue is less with the laptop and more with me and my relation to baths. And- <laughs> My connection, yeah, the co- yeah, it was bound to happen. I'm a very laissez-faire with my laptop in a bath scenario. So, who well, doesn't want to watch movies in the bath, right? I hey, I totally agree, and and and, and maybe iPhones because I think they're water resistant now. But we're here to talk about you and your wonderful work, man. And I'm really excited to get a chance to talk to you. You've no, carved you. out a really awesome path, and you have some incredible projects coming out. You know, True Love. Uh, I love Gareth Edwards, man. He's a great yeah. director. So. I'm really excited to see you in that. I got some friends. You know Mark Menchaca? Mark, yeah, yeah, of course. What a legend. Yeah. Yeah, great time. Yeah, uh, he's the man. Yeah. He's amazing. Yeah, he's he's great in this, in that, in that movie. And we had some cool scenes together. And we had it was just a crazy job, man. We were like, you know, the whole thing is set in a sort of future dystopia, technological, but for the most part, it was all shot in Thailand. So we were just out there for like I was out there for like almost three and a half months. Wow. Um, even though I'm not that big a, <laughs> a part of the movie, I, I have quite a sort of like strange presence within it. I won't give too much away, but I have a strange presence within the movie and it involves me working with a lot of the other actors. And so other people's schedules would be like, you know, a few weeks here, a few weeks there. But for me, it was just like, you're there the whole time and you will come in when other people come in. Wow. Um, so I've had this like weird world where people would sort of dip in and out and then I would go away for a week or two and then come back and there'd be a whole bunch of new actors. I'm like, who are you guys? <laughs> the ne- like the new year at school. And you're like, yeah. Oh. Yeah. But Mark's great. We were shooting up north and we, uh, we bonded over Negroni's. Classic drink. <laughs> I love it, man. That's beautiful. Well, but before we dig in the work, let's start at the very beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, like in between East London and North London, um, largely. Um, but I had family in West London, which is like a quite a large sort of Indian immigrant area. Um, so yeah, sort of a multi multi London geographical upbringing. The and best you- of all the cultural worlds. Because you were moving around a lot, or you had parents that lived in different places. Yeah, uh, partly because my 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 dad lived in Hackney, my mum lived in North London for for a bit, and we we moved around a bit, and then I would stay with my grandparents, and it was quite a, it, it was quite a, a unique upbringing because London is so big and so vast and so multicultural, yeah. especially areas where I was sort of north and east. There's like, I think I and don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure I read that one of the areas where I live is called Stoke Newington and the square mile area of Stoke Newington is apparently like the most culturally diverse square mile in all of Europe because it has a huge Turkish community, a huge Bengali Indian community, um, huge Afro-Caribbean community. There's like, there's like all these different immigrant communities from North London have all coalesced in this one area. 
so having that and then also being able to go to West London where my grandparents were, where there was a very big Indian connection. Um, and then, you know, East London, which is like a very strong black cultural area as well. Um, sort of had a, like a mad mix of everything. Wow. So you, you got London in your blood, man. That's so beautiful. And, and, and talk to me then, you know, um, what are your parents artists? No, <laughs> not really. I mean, my dad can draw. And I think he wishes he'd done more of that, but he is, uh, he works in academia now or he's retired, but yeah, he was a, uh, he, he was a social worker for a long time and then a, wow. uh, ended up becoming a chief executive of a social worker of, of, um, of a social work um, company, um, sort of like a, um, privatized social work company when the government was outsourcing in the sort of nineties and then moved into uh, academia and became a, a professor and teaching diversity and management diversity, um, within structured organizations and my mother was also a social social worker but then she ha in her life has been a poet and a writer and a, an artist in her own right um but yeah yeah there, there is sort of a, a mix of stuff there in the family that's so beautiful and then talk to me then you know where did the artistic inclination start to happen you know with your mother writing like was she exposing you to literary materials at a young age or yeah i mean well, my parents and my stepmother as well, who is also responsible for helping bring me up, like my family has a deep love and connection to art, you know, music and film. And I was always brought up to, you know, to appreciate that. And my dad was a, a big rocker, huge fan of the Beatles, Rolling Stones, Super Tramp, like 70s uh, era rock and roll and Zeppelin. And my mum was more sort of Bob Marley and a bit more Motown, as was my stepmom. Um bits of jazz um but with sort of modern pop music like i was always exposed to great music as a child um, yeah. but then also quite a big uh love of world music from both of them uh, my dad's a huge fan of african guitar music and you know north african music and south african music and then indian classical music as well and there's you know i had a very rich childhood when it came to like appreciating different music and art out there and in terms of film um you know i guess the thing is is there's a big immigrant community of Indians in, in the UK and largely the sort of Punjabi side of it, which is North Indian, which used to be all of the Punjab now is half Punjab, half Pakistan. Those two sort of parts of India, a lot of those people that came post-colonialization settled in the UK or in the West. Mm. Rich history there. And then my dad's family uh, were East African Indians from Uganda who came over when Idi Amin exiled the African, the, the Af exiled the Indians from Africa in the 70s. And so he came and he settled in the East because there was a big community there. Wow. Um, and so they sort of came to this country young and there is a big sort of move to assimilate, you know, and become part of that country when you move in. And so my dad, I think, was just willing to expose himself to all these new culture, cultural sort of um, markers and zeitgeisty things that were happening in the 70s in the UK and same with my mum. But I also had this tie to the West and the East, parts of the city where these strong Indian cultures were. So I think with that lens of wanting to just experience lots of things as, a, as the first generation Brit born here for them, I just was exposed to all these things that were exciting to them. Yeah. Um, so in terms of film, you know, there's, there's a huge love of cinema in my family blockbusters to art house films to indian films to world cinema as well um so yeah i was i was blessed to like be exposed to a lot of different you know cultural standpoints and markers in, in history by my family and then my auntie is a director as well and she'd made a film uh in the uh 90s that i was in when i was four years old so it was my first role 
No way. Yeah, she's a very successful filmmaker. Um, her name's Gorinda Chadder, and she directed Bender Like Beckham. And Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was my first exposure to film. I was four. And then there was a, an opportunity to be a child actor, but I sort of didn't want to do it, I think, at that age. I told my parents, I was like, no, nah, I'm just going to go back to school, see my friends. Yeah. And then as I got older, I decided that I loved being creative. I was always a maker. I loved to make things, you know, toys and models and Legos. And I was very creatively minded when it came to building. I'm not, a, I'm sort of a more a lateral thinker than a logical thinker in, in the yeah. sense that I like problem solving and, and using my hands. And so I decided that I wanted to be in the industry, but I wanted to be a designer of some sort. Like stage design or? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I actually studied production design as a undergrad and that was what I graduated in. Um, so yeah, so, so through my aunt, I had been exposed from a young age to the film industry. Um, and I never really, I mean, I worked with her a little bit, um, in the art department, whenever, if she ever had a film going and I had trained as a production designer, would sort of work alongside her as an, you know, in the art department and learn my way around a film set through that, through those qualifications. But I'd never really worked with her. We have different approaches to film. When, yeah. you, know, you know, it's funny that, that really having people in the industry, of course, can help you get work, but someone like a director only has, there's only one or two of those jobs around yeah. <laughs> and then, other jobs on the film set, some, you know, there's singular departments of one person. There's not really space for more than two. So totally. it's great exposure to that world, but I didn't, we didn't really work too much together. Um, and so I found my path to acting sort of by myself, by accident, really. I'd always been a bit of a performer. Um, We're I talking sort of, post-grad here? Yeah. So post-grad, okay. I, okay. I became a production designer for a bit. Um, mostly like art directing, did lots of music videos and commercials. Anything and you can na name drop that people could check out? I don't think anyone would care. Um, I'm talking like, I mean, I never became a full-fledged production designer, one or two like indie short films and things. Okay, okay, cool. I was, I was working on like Activia commercials and oh, all right. <laughs> working on like big budget commercials as an art, as an art department person, but it was lots of prop sourcing and, and sometimes making and, but, you know, when I graduated, I was like, I'm going to build pirate ships. I want to make the Goonies. That's what was in my head. That's the dream. But that yeah. is such a small, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a hard world to get into. And in the UK, especially yeah. the film industry in the sort of early noughties wasn't huge. Um, there wasn't a huge amount getting made. And there's only ever going to be like 10 production designers and you can get into those departments. But very quickly, I just realized like, this is probably not the path for me. I'm, I'm good, but I'm not incredible. And I'm not yeah. going to sell at this. So I sort of reset myself. I started making films. I was like, I can still make though and become a director. So I started editing films and, and making music videos for people from a more sort of umbrella director point of view. Yeah. Ended up making a few music videos. A friend of mine said I was a really good editor because I'd edited something together. And I think probably because I was also a musician as well. And I had an idea of meter and timing that editing felt relatively instinctive to me. Final cut days or. Yeah, oh yeah. Final yeah, cut. Yeah. Final cut seven. Oh, the oh, best man. Oh God. Yeah. Hate that they killed that program. It was so good. I used yeah. it way too late after it was <laughs> phased out. When I, still, I still don't know how to use premiere the right way, man. You know, it's so hard to switch over. I had to force myself to use Premiere professionally because it just made sense. Because yeah. everything, but in my heart of hearts, I was like, where's that Final Cut Pro disc? I know, man. I miss it so much. Yeah, I'm so glad yeah. you feel the same. Relearning all those shortcuts. Like, oh, the hotkeys are critical. Yeah, like yeah. C, cut. That's obvious. And then yeah. B for blade. You're like, what? No one says blade. A lot of people I say know. blade. No one you're editing. 
Yeah, no, that was a <laughs> that's a, that's a, a lauded and sacred piece of software to me. So yeah, I taught myself to edit, and then I picked up some cameras, and then I ended up editing these films for this clothes fashion company called All Saints. I, I think you have. I love All Saints. Yeah, they're great. Right. Yeah, so I worked for All Saints for like three years, as they I became the kind of de facto head of video in All Saints. Wow, uh, and they're yeah. big companies, so you must have been doing pretty well. Yeah, it was strange, man. It was a fun time. It was like the birth of of, of digital content on YouTube, right? Yeah. People, people, what we were doing is my friend who worked there at the time was the head of music, and fashion houses didn't really have heads of music, but they were finding as a brand that they were doing so much crossover with fashion shows and events and, you know, getting artists to be heroes in campaigns. So they needed someone who understood the music industry. So Tom, Tom Hart, who worked there, he was their head of music. And he had this idea of being like, well, let me use my connections in the industry to just bring in bands. We'll give them a ton of free clothes and then we'll shoot music sessions of them. And then we'll put them on YouTube. And this is in like 2011 when no one was doing it. Wow, I think yeah. Red, Red, Red Bull Academy was doing it. And Burberry was doing this thing called Burberry Acoustic, where they had like one person with a guitar and they would film it. Totally. No one else was doing full band sessions. So I was cutting those. And then I came in one day and was like, oh, you're just using two cameras. If you get three or four more, we can make it super dynamic. And then by a year later, we were just shooting these like insane, uh, like six, seven camera live sessions with um, George Harrison's son, uh, Danny Harrison has a band called The New Number Two. We did them. We did like Foster the People, all these huge bands from like 2000. Wow. Yeah. Gary Newman came in with an amazing thing with Gary Newman. Did this crazy session with Flume. <laughs> it was fun. Oh, it was crazy. Bands that are crushing it now. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. all up and coming people that knew the industry and we were like, here's free clothes. You come in, you do what you do best. We'll film it. We'll cut it. It goes on YouTube and, and, and this is the new world of content. And it made sense. And so I just was just shooting and learning how to shoot on like small scales on bigger scales for like three years and by 2014 i was a director and i you left feel like that was your film school sorry to interrupt yeah but, absolutely yeah. that was, yeah. that was like a, a, you know trial by fire because i knew how to use a camera I, you know i taught myself how to use a camera but it was this weird i mean it's it's in in 30 years time we'll look back on this like period of two years where they invented the sort of the you know the canon 5d the dslr you know the DSLR yeah camera. Totally. And, you know, suddenly you had this camera that had these lenses that could create soft focus and depth and all these yeah. cinematic things. And if you hit a button, it would shoot high quality footage for like 10 minutes. And suddenly a film was like, well, I just need this camera. Yeah, <laughs> like I know. Some the, the 5D Mark III, that was the one. Everyone had it. It changed yeah. the world. So I was right there at the birth of that. And I was able to just, ch- and you know, these cameras were largely photography cameras. And so All Saints had like 10 of them in their studio. You know, they were just shooting. Well, I didn't even think about that. Wow. And so I was like, let's grab a couple of them and shoot this. And then we'd take models out on the street and shoot lookbooks. And then suddenly I was getting more creative. I remember one of the head of, um, head of Wimsor at the time had come up to me and said, oh, we've got some new jewelry coming out. Should we make a film? I was like, yes. So we just hired, we hired like a phantom camera which shot like slow-mo camera yeah like 2000 frames a second and this jewelry was like giant crystals and stuff and we just put it on black perspex and then dumped water on it and shot it in slow motion it was just like these explosive it just looked so epic that's amazing yeah and it was i was getting to experiment and be conceptual with ideas and i had like this wealth of of resources you know i I had subjects like models and clothes and then i had equipment and i had freedom to turn things into you know interesting visuals and it was just a real baptism of fire in in terms of how how to craft a film and then i was cutting it all so i just became this sort of like self-made filmmaker and then i left all saints signed with a production company in east london called agile became one of their directors and then started doing big high level commercials and at 
by sort of 2015 was was directing like L'Oreal commercials. Wow. <laughs> I'm not telling anyone because that that stuff is great and you earn a lot of money, um, but it's not really your creative work. You know, you want to make other stuff. I want them to yeah. make short films and. And the, it's a poison chalice, really, because it's like you get paid a bunch of money to do this commercial, and then you're like, cool, I'll just take some of that, and I'll make a short film, and then I'll do another one. But actually, you have to hustle to get another you're, commercial. You're so busy, yeah, in the grind. Mm. I get it, yeah. And again, like, again, I got to this point where I was like, I was good at, at, at it, but I wasn't incredible. And I never really loved fashion that much to like be dedicated enough to be good at it as a director. I was getting more and more interested in long form stuff or like surreal comedy. And I couldn't, I couldn't sort of slide into that lane because my reel was high end fashion. And, you know, yeah. I got quite well known for doing these dance films. So I did like for the couples, I worked for the couples for three years, which is like a sort of upmarket high street. Yeah. Love know. couples. Yeah. Yeah. I directed all of their campaigns for like three years and they were cool. Concept- Dude, you're like Kubrick here. You're trying to make it sound like you're some like, <laughs> You're crushing it with the biggest brands, man. You were doing so well. Yeah, I, I was, but in my heart of hearts, it was like I'm good at this, but I'm not incredible. And alongside that, I had been making, I was immersed in films. So I'd always make stupid, like short films with friends and like comedy sketches. And I lived in this warehouse in East London with like five other creative people, and we would put on nights and perform. And it, we were just immersing ourselves in our creative energy and ability. And I liked performing. And then I had this band. And in 2015, 16, I had this band. And we we released a cover of Don't Let Go by En Vogue. Yeah. Um, you know, what's it gonna be? Yeah. Yeah, we released that. And it, it went on, like, TV. And it was on a show. And it, it charted us for a little bit. And then the, the band got, like, a little bit successful. And then we started getting booked. And it was a fun party band. And so I started doing festivals, you know, at Glastonbury and, you know, all the best of all these big festivals in the UK and some in Europe with my buddies, my two best friends. And we were just, I was shooting films and commercials and making money. And then I'd take weekends off and drive to festivals and play to like 3,000 people. And it'd be people that never really heard our band. And it's What was fest- the band's name called? Because I'm going to look at it. Strong Asian Mothers. Strong Asian Mothers. I'm going to, I wish I, 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 unless you approve it, maybe I'll try to sync some music here. <laughs> you're on spot, my man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all, you have my permission. I don't yeah. know. I don't think they'll care. But yeah, you know, suddenly we had this thing. And I was suddenly in this situation where I was like turning up to festivals, going on stage and performing. And I'd been in bands my whole life, but it was like guitar bands. And there's a very specific way of performing with a guitar band. You know, it's mysterious. You don't have to engage. People are there for the music and the sound. But with Strong Asian Mothers, we were making this big alternative, like exciting pop music that was like, party music and you can't just end a song and go quiet you have to talk and keep the audience invigorated and make it like an exciting state a bit like the flaming lips it's like this big spectacle right and that that gets your band noticed and it gets people caring about your music so my friend my my best friend who's now also a solo artist in LA but he and myself were the two lead singers sort of like frontmen of this band we found ourselves doing this like live show that was huge bombastic music and then some kind of part stand-up where we would just like randomly talk to people and improv stuff. And again, I was like on stage in front of thousands of people that I didn't know, having to learn how to perform and refine comic timing and be engaging without any filter or editing because it was just, that was it. And it was yeah. kind of a like theater in a way. So all these things have been coalescing and all I needed was someone to notice me. Not not that I wanted to be noticed. All I mean is that, you know, like a, a friend of mine was a casting, was working with a casting director who said, you know, comedians auditioned for this advert. And I started, friends of mine who were directors started putting me in adverts that they were making because they were like, you've got a good face. 
and you can roughly do timing. Being my advert is easier than doing a casting. I did like four or five commercials. I did this one Pringles commercial <laughs> for the yeah. World Cup in like 2014, and it was a huge buyout. And I was like, wow, there's good money in this. Um, and it's way easier than directing. And then I got there and I shot this commercial, and the director was Larry Charles. No way. Uh, yeah, who direct, who you know used to write Seinfeld and directed Borat, incredible filmmaker. Yeah, we got on like a house on fire. He, I was like, "What are you doing here?" He's like, "Oh, I'm, this is what I do to make money." Uh, I was like, "Oh, shit! If you're my competition as a commercial director, I'm screwed. <laughs> <laughs> you're a legend, and I'm still doing L'Oreal things." So again, I was reassessing myself, and he said, "Oh, we'll work together again. Don't worry about it." And I was like, "Cool." And then I went home and got on with my life. And then a year later, he emailed me and said, "You know." I'm making this movie with Nicolas Cage. Do you want to be in it? <laughs> what a bro. He really, yeah, he really well, meant then, it. Yeah. Well, he actually sent me a, an email and said, hey, A, it's L. Been thinking about you recently. Making a movie with Nicolas Cage. Do you want to be in it? Are you free? And I couldn't really believe it. Um, but me being me, I replied to him with the face-off poster but I photoshopped my face over John Travolta and <laughs> scribbled two <laughs> and then just sent back, yeah, I'm free. Yeah. <laughs> and then he, did, he didn't reply for like three days. I was like, oh, I've ruined my life. <laughs> <laughs> and then he came back and was like, ha ha, cool. All right, um, this is the details. I was like, wait, no audition, nothing. And he was basically making this movie um, that sadly didn't, didn't do well because uh, he was actually muscled out of the editing process by the Weinsteins. Oh, who, God. Taking control of, yeah, they were taking control of their Oscar Can you say what the movie is or was? Yeah, or? it came out. It came out. It, it, it's kind of fun. It's called uh, Army of One, and it's about this guy who had a kid. He's, he's a real guy. His name's Gary Faulkner, and he had this liver failure-induced uh, episode where he passed out and in his head saw God, and God told him to go and hunt down and capture Bin Laden and bring Bin Laden back. Wow. Uh, the justice in, in in the states and this guy went like full gung-ho like you know um mercenary and started trying to find bin laden by flying to pakistan and took like a samurai sword with him like an absolutely crazy amazing guy and then he eventually got he, he eventually caused so much of a fuss that the cia who were operating in in pakistan at the time i think they took his passport they found him took his passport tore up and said go home stop it and on his last trip back his girlfriend at the time had somehow convinced letterman to have him on so he went straight on to letterman and did this crazy interview and <laughs> and then gq wrote this big piece about him and so the filmmakers bought the rights of that and so they wrote this crazy script about this guy and nick uh, nick cage played this guy um, and i played osama bin laden in his head because he never met him so he had yeah. this in his head, he has God, who is Russell Brand, and Osama bin Laden, who is this kind of caricatured villain version of bin Laden who he wants to conquer. Um, and we shot loads of stuff. Not a huge amount of it made it. It ends with like a sort of weird samurai sword fight duologue in this cave. So it's a, it's a comedy, though. Yeah, oh, God, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah the reality yeah. is that, um, and, you know, this is a classic thing with Larry and, and a lot of satirical comedic directors, is the butt of the joke was America and America's desire to be involved in foreign affairs. Exactly. Uh, and, and I think that's what Nick was challenging, yeah, ch channeling. He was like, you know, I'm just going to get involved with this shit because I can fix it and I'm yeah. American. So it was, a, it was a satirical film. And I think the Weinsteins or the Powers of Beach just decided, nah. They didn't too, get it. They were like, it's too provocative. We've got other stuff coming up. They re-edited it. They muscled Larry out. He was really upset. They got rid of his editor. They recut the whole film to be this weird Oh, sort of God. 
So it was weird. So I, I'd gone from like being not an actor to suddenly being an actor and being in this movie. And I remember, I remember sitting on set on this one day and it was like me at opposite Nick doing this thing. And I was like, how the, how did I get here? Yeah. Um, but I was not phased. I was like, I can perform. I just have to get over the fact that I'm doing it in front of people I've never met before. And there are high stakes, but I can just push all that out and I can do it because that's really all I'm here for. But I knew what lens sizes were. I knew what the directors were doing. I knew what Mark was. I knew the technicality of a film set because I've been doing it for years. I was like, this is easy. The hard part is doing it in front of people. Yeah. So I went with it. And yeah, and then after that, you know, I got an agent and... Wait, I got to ask, how's working with Nick Cage, man? I mean, oh, how amazing. many people get to say, you know, my first job was with Nick Cage? Yeah, not many. <laughs> uh, great. I loved him. He was amazing. He was dedicated. He is hilarious. He's yeah. so much fun to be around. He, there's, a, there's a hilarious scene that never made it to the film, but it's like there's this, there's this whole like <laughs> progressive montage of where he passes out in the desert. He wakes up and it's, he, he and I in a samurai sword fight in a cave and he bests me. And then he's like, I got you, Benny boy. And then he marches me out of the cave down this village. Um, and he just keeps changing costume and they get more and more ridiculous. And he's like, first he's wearing this like Tibetan crown. And then he, and then he's like wearing this suit and he's marching me through the village. Um, he's like throwing rose petals on me. It was absolutely crazy shoot day down the busiest street of Marrakesh. And then it ends with him taking me on the plane. And the last scene before he wakes up is him flying me to home. And, and the thing about Bin Laden is Bin Laden is like a comic book villain in this. He's not really, he doesn't know what he wants. He's like, you know, he's supposed to be this terrifying fan- uh, fanatic uh, Muslim terrorist, uh, but he's also a bit of a performer, and he he loves Seinfeld. He loves you know he loves Jewish comedy, which is <laughs> it's so funny. I got to watch this. Yeah, well, yeah. I, don't, I don't think any of that made the cut. But, but oh the, no, man! Yeah, no. The last scene is sort of like a montage, montage, and it's just me sat on the plane, handcuffed next to Nick, and I'm watching Seinfeld on my iPad. And I'm just giggling. And that's the end of the montage. And Nick's asleep on my shoulder. So I turn up to this scene and they've been waiting like 45 minutes to shoot on me because I had to have a beard attached. Because before that I was playing like a shoe bomber because he keeps seeing Nick everywhere. Got it. Okay. So I was playing a shoe bomber on the plane that he tackles. It was me without beard because um, he thinks he's seen Bin Laden. And then they tread. So everyone's waiting for me. So I walk in and sit down <laughs> in front of a full ready set, which is also rare. You get to go yeah. there and warm up and block it out. But they were like, we're waiting. Let's just block it. I walk in. They're like, sit down. This is what you're doing. Action. And I'm like, I'm just laughing. He's like, yeah, you're just giggling at the iPad. So I'm looking at this iPad. It's off. It's black. They're going to put something in the post. So I'm looking at myself in this black mirror, dressed as Bin Laden, giggling. And Nick is asleep on my shoulder. And every time I giggle, his face jiggles. And then he starts giggling. And then Larry starts giggling. And then everyone's just giggling whilst... Because it's the most ridiculous thing. I'm just like, <laughs> like it's just that. And no one knew it was cut. And we're doing that for like a solid minute. <laughs> and then Amazing. Larry's like, all right, that's that's a wrap. Let's go. And I'm like, really? Yeah, okay. How 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 have I ended up here? But yeah, Nick was amazing. It was a great sport. We had a lot of fun on set. Um, he had a much harder job than me. He was doing way more scenes, but it was fun. And do you feel... I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. What, what I was, was just going to say it was really, really surreal. Yeah. <laughs> it was a strange year. And do you feel like that, you know, having that incredible experience is what catapulted you into like, I want to I want to be acting. Like, is that? Yeah, I wouldn't say catapulted. I would say like a snail's crawl up a hill. But Okay, but okay. With the same momentum sort of in my mind. But it was really just like, I can do this. I've proven that I am castable to high-level Hollywood productions 
I have seen myself work and don't think I'm terrible. Why, why would I want to do this rather than can I do it? And so I started reassessing if I wanted to be an actor. Obviously, I went back to directing because that was how I made money. But I yeah. had this privileged position of being able to make money being a director, which is incredibly lucky. And then if auditions came in, I would just say yes or no to whatever was the most interesting to me. And that's a very rare privilege to be afforded as, a, as an actor. So, I, you know, I was at home just you know, an audition would come in. I'd be like, mm, it feels a bit tropish as an Indian person. You know, this is a time in the industry where... Before representation come. was... Yeah, people were yeah. starting to want to diversify their productions and see more interesting faces. And I was like, I could exploit a niche here where, um, you know, I'm not a young, fresh face out of drama school. I'm never going to be a sexy lead, like a 20-year-old lead. I'm 28, 29 by this point. But if someone wants to car- a character actor, which is what I always wanted to be, yeah. If, I, if someone's a you know a strange looking character actor in their film and it, and they don't want that person to be a white face, then I could be a viable alternative. And there really aren't that many South Asian men doing it. You know, still on if I counted, I could probably name like ten to fifteen names that are yeah. well enough. So I was like, you know, and I happen to be tall and broad, and and it was and, and you're a good looking guy. Come on, man. You know, don't be so yeah. Yeah. That's subjective. Yeah. Um, my mother agrees. Uh, but yeah, it, it was it was more that like, this is a new face. And I think it was interesting. Like, and then a notable thing was it was this HBO show called The Third Day. And it was like a weird folk horror thriller thing set on this island in, in the UK. And Jude Law was the lead. Catherine Waterson and Naomi um, uh, Watts, uh, like, uh, like a great cast. Um of, of amazing actors and they needed this character who was like a demented preacher and it read on the script it leaps off the page as like baptist southern american preacher and i was like i could probably do that um so i shot this mad tape of me dressed like a priest out on the beach in front of a cliff and the audition tape was this page-long sermon and i just went full like performative preacher with it yeah you know in an american accent and I had this big beard and hair and stuff and sent in and they were like, we love it. And, we, you know, we, there's a little bit of workshopping with the accent and there's a few other things, but, you know, it wasn't a huge part of the show. But it's, I always felt like if you're a really good character actor, then ultimately you're invisible. It's the, the thing about acting is like people think the job is the glamorous bit. <laughs> people think no. the job is the carpet or it's the interviews or where. Yeah, that's all the bullshit. Yeah. And largely, the the job is you on set waiting to do your thing. You do it. It's, you know, you get treated like an actor, which I have my own reservations about. But ultimately, you're part of a machine with a, another 150 to 200 people on a, on totally. a big production. If you all do your job well, you work, you know, you end up with a great product. But no one is more special than anybody else. As much as that happens, you want to fight that. And so it's not very, it's not a very glamorous job. And so there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of incredible actors out there that are character actors that do supporting roles or small roles. And they're, they're known, but they're kind of a bit invisible because they step in, they nail it and they disappear and yeah. they do something else. And that's, that's what I thought I could offer the world. So, you know, same. I, you know, that's what I'm trying to do. I, I totally identify. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and that's 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 what I was looking for. And then, you know, I just decided that that was going to be my thing. I was going to only take roles that were interesting to me and felt like they had never been done by a South Asian person before. And so for the first three or four years, I worked maybe like three or four times over three or four years because nothing was interesting to me. And then as I got more and more known by casting directors, um, 
it started to grow and evolve and then it led me to, to this. And, and now I'm at a point, you know, there's a notable jump where you end up, if you do something where you are a, a lead character and you're essential to a plot, then, then the eyes become, the eyes are all on you outside for the marketing and the other elements of, of pushing that show forward. And it really not, knocks you up to a different sort of stratosphere of having to approach the job because you got to sell the movie and talk yeah, about the project. Yeah. You stop being an actor just on set. You start, you still, you're still a performer elsewhere in your life. And it's, a, it's an interesting thing. And I, I never, ever thought of it existing for me. You know, I never saw this in my future. I was just like, I'm going to do stuff that never been done before because if I can do that, then you know, I'll open the door to other people. And I, I, like I've said this before, I think me playing Borman and Willow is, an, is a huge leap forward for diversity. I think it's the first time a South Asian man has done like the, rogue with a heart of gold character yeah. you know the han solo jack sparrow thing totally like in global western cinema like on tv it's it's a pretty new thing but a, a large part of me believes that it was only really made possible because dev patel did green knight and he made an asian south asian man with a sword possible yeah and i think you know it, a lot of people don't really appreciate this but it's amazing. And this goes back to my days of directing. Like I would come up with ideas for commercials or be asked to pitch on stuff. And I would be asked constantly for references. And it's kind of like, if you can find a reference, an ideal perfect reference for what you're trying to achieve, then you have proven that what you're trying to achieve has already been done. Yeah. And that's fine for the most part. But like, if I pitch an idea for a commercial and that I've got reference, I'm like, well, if I do, then it means it's been done before and it's not unique and you need this to be unique. But it is so interesting how many gatekeepers in the industry require that proof that it can be done to know that they can do it again. So, you know, what David Larry did and Dev Patel did with The Green Knight was groundbreaking for me. Like, I've always loved Arthurian legends in the UK. I've always loved England's connection to pagan history. I like pagan history and folklore is interesting in any country. So when I saw this trailer and I see Dev Patel in this stone chair and his head turns into fire and this crown and then you got Sean Harris and this crazy Sean Harris voice, you know, like, tell me a tale. Like just the, the creme de la creme of like A24 character actors. I'm like, this is so up my street. I can't breathe. And then I see Dev doing it with the sword and I'm like, whoa (laughs) what the you know what the hell has happened here this is my this is like the dream intersection of all of everything i love and so they really broke new ground with that um regardless of how you feel about the film like i think it's an amazing achievement and all it meant is that the next time someone had to be like oh and then this guy with the sword is going to be this guy and it's south asian it means that the world is like is that weird no, not really. It's done, been done before. Yeah, we've seen it. I don't, I'm not adverse to it. And I think those cultural changes and markers are huge. They have a huge impact in like the, our collective appreciation of media. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of what I'm trying to do in my career is like just look out for things that I feel like if I get to do it, it feels so different and new for a South Asian man that hopefully that opens the door for anyone else trying to do it and we can bring that up and that's really what where I'm, you know what, well you, you're you're certainly oh. doing it and an amazing job at it in in willow you know you're you're so funny and and you're able to carry the badass action and to find that perfect blend i'm, I'm curious you know just because you know i have a lot of british actors on the show mm-hmm. and you know i'm not going to name any but you know obviously we know that in the uk there are a lot of these kids that have been bred that go to prep schools 
you know, that are the best in the world and then go to the best drama schools. And then, you know, it can be really hard in the UK for actors that don't go to a, a RADA or, a, you know, an old Vic to, to just get an audition. Do you feel like you ever encountered that or because you had that survival job, you know, you were able to not not be phased by that part? I'm sure I make a lot of people very angry, you know. <laughs> no, not a- no, I'm, I'm, there are probably 100,000 other men out there that could have done what I did with Borman and I, or, or done something similar or different or what happens that, you know, it's, I don't believe that there's only one person for a role. It's a, it's a, it's a coalescence. It's a synergy, right? So the role is written and the person who inhabits it isn't a complete chameleon. They have to bring some of themselves. So it becomes this mesh of like what the idea behind the character is and what the person who does it can bring. So that's one element of it. And the other element is that it's timing and luck and a, a million different things that, that come yeah. together to make that happen. And that is impossible to formulate and bottle. And I have been lucky enough to experience that. And I know lots of actors who deserve those chances and whether it happens to them is never down to them. It's, it's sort of down to like, whether, you know, whether the stars align and you know for example i one of my one of my big breaks really which isn't really a break but it's an interesting thing that happened in the industry was that i was cast in one of the episodes of dark materials um his dark materials in the second series um there was a standalone episode with james mcavoy terence stamp and myself and i was cast as a supporting role in it um alongside basically forehanded between myself james terence and this kid amazing kid called um Osama McDougall. And that for me was like, I've made it. I've proved to a casting director and director and producers and things. I can hold down a role that's, that's important and go through dramatic shifts and do it alongside other great actors. And this is me getting to act. Um, And after that, I was like, that's, this is something where people will ask me about it. I'll get pressed. People will know me outside of the industry. They'll, they'll, it can lead to more work. We started shooting. We did 10 days of shooting COVID hit. They shut down production. I went home and three weeks later, the producer called me up and was like, we're not going to finish the episode. <laughs> we've we've no. got, an, it was a standalone episode and we have seven episodes that, that follow this, the book's plot. And this was a sort of new thing that Philip Pullman, the writer and Jack Thorne had written together to answer some questions that weren't in the book, but the series works without it. BBC doesn't want to lose their transmission date. We just, and it was done. And that for me, it was like, Oh my God. Through no, yeah. Through no fault of my own, this thing that could have been my break was taken from me but it made me realize that like it's not me (laughs) it's not me you know and whether i'm a good actor or not it's completely irrelevant sometimes because it's just about how the stars align and so you know with the with the acting thing i I definitely think that there you know i I think the reason it took a long time for me to get going is because why would you entertain the cv of a person who didn't train who's a little bit older who might not who on paper can't do what you know a trained actor can do. I'm sure that there are lots of things I was put up for were put aside, but I get protected from that by my agents. And I'm sure I was put up, I'm sure I wasn't put up for a lot of things I would have nailed, but it just wasn't the right thing. You know, just no one thought I could do it. It's such a strange process. Um, There's so much fiction involved. You know, it's just, I tell actors all the time, it's, a million good things can happen to someone for no reason, you know, and it just, that's just the business, you know, and the only thing you can do is keep doing good work, you know? Yeah. I mean, I I do, you know, I never went to drama school, so I am technically untrained as an actor and there's a big, uh, you know, there's a, a 
a trait of, of British actors. I think they're quite well respected because of our drama school training and because of our love of theatre. And I think there's an assumption that British actors have that. And I don't have that. But what I do have is a relatively unique lived experience yeah. in my life and my upbringing and what I can do and what I, what cultural... You know, I mean, the, the thing with Willow is I tried to make it my own as much as I could. And I knew that I was stepping into the feet of essentially Val Kilmer. Who, how, how did it come your way? Can we talk about that? Like, yeah, how, it, yeah. It came in as there's a casting director called Lauren Evans, who uh, is an amazing casting director. She had cast me in this one tiny scene in Sex Education. And she'd also cast me in um, His Dark Materials. You know, she, wow. she, she had known of me. And that's an, an incredibly valuable career connection that I'd made and she she advocated for me and I think she sent the tape my way and they loved what I did and they uploaded it I think she told me it was the first tape they uploaded out of like the thousands of people they auditioned and that was October 2020 and then it was a six-month audition process till I got cast in March 2021 um and before it was very COVID oh this was yeah, okay got it yeah, got it was it. the year yeah. after it was a late yeah. casting and I think John has gone John Kazan our showrunner has gone on on record as saying that ultimately he loved me but I was just way too skinny and I needed to be this bulk behemoth guy for this role um and I remember saying you know I will make myself as big as pot like that is easy for me yeah proving I can do this is hard but I will eat r- rice and chicken and, and pick things up over and over again to get big to inhabit the role but I can do this and I, I will make this my own and I will work a thousand times harder than any other actor who you might cast who might be white because I have so much more to prove yeah this role like if I if I screw this up, I screw it up not just for me, but for other South Asian actors who could possibly step into this role. Like I was so committed to wanting to do this, and you know it was an interesting casting process. I did multiple tapes, a couple of chemistry reads, lots of meetings. I think it got to a point where it was like I can do the job and I can be I can work well with the production. It's you know it's just a physical thing at this point, and it's not really my fault. And there's all these things again it's it's you know you you can't really bottle how it works out but i managed to convince them in the end that it was me and um i mean the funny thing about it is i felt like i was stepping into this role this established role that the you know val kilmer did in in the original film and i'm not playing him but every fantasy archetype every fantasy genre needs that archetype totally and i knew i could do it because my childhood was was you know it was formulated by princess bride and labyrinth and dark crystal and mirror mask and neil gaiman books and you know monty python and the goons and like crazy surreal comedy and action and jurassic park spielberg like that was my childhood and i was like i have this this knowledge and these references that i need to pick and choose from have been percolating through my system they're my they're my learned research that i've inhabited this is like I can do this. I just need to refine this performance and make that my own and not pay attention to trying to copy anything. And so again, it's that, it's that lived experience and what you've chosen to immerse yourself in. And it it will get to a point, hopefully in my career where I'm asked to do much more difficult things that I haven't, that I have to work harder to do, you know, like I'll hope role will come my way and I'll have to be like, okay, I need to just knuckle down and study to really know how I'm going to inhabit this character. Um, and those come with proving myself in other ways. So I've proved myself in this way, hopefully, with, with Willow. And now someone will be like, do you think you could maybe try this? And we think you would work for this. And now I think it's a battle for me to stay outside of my box yeah. <laughs> you know, to prove. And that's that's why straight after Willow wrapped, I did I went to do Gareth's movie. And then straight after that, I did a rom-com, sort of like a weird 
the 15 oh. love uh this was called slip this is with oh, okay got it got it mm. okay and, you know, Gareth's movie was just this ginormous sci-fi epic and it was dramatic. It wasn't comedic. And I was going to play sinister characters and interesting characters. You know, it was new to me after having done Willow. And I was like, if Willow comes out, people are going to want to see what I can do. This is, feels far enough away from that. Yeah. I've got to do that. And then, you know, with Slip, I was really excited to work with Zoe. She's incredible. We'd met in LA at dinner once with mutual friends. And then she sent this my way. And I got to play this sort of like, kind of cocky fantasy guy and again for me i was like you know asian men don't get to often be this attractive dude in a rom-com and whether i think of myself attractive or not it was more like it's a role here where i get to play and be a bit more to embrace this side of me that's seen as like charming and and yeah you know fantastical and i've never done that and i haven't seen that much and that seems like it's worthy of doing and then with 15 love it's again it's not a huge part of the show but it's it was immersed in the real world and i was yeah. like well i've done pirate thief man i've done sci-fi epic i've done rom-com with a twist now i should do something that's just real life drama so at every turn i'm trying to push myself to do something that feels like it's completely new so that i can hopefully build this roster of work that still keeps me as a comedian or a character actor because that's well, really what i'm interested in you're doing an outstanding job and it's incredible. And I'm really curious, you know, especially now that you have these incredible credits, you did the Willow and got to be this badass leading man. You know, what, what do you want to do now? You know, I mean, do his American project starting to come your way or, you know, what's, what's the, well, I'm going to, I'm going to Rome in January to start a Netflix show called the Decameron. Amazing. Is, uh, Congratulations. Just, thank you. Yeah. And that's going to be so much fun. It's, it's basically like 10, noble aristocrats crats in this sort of like class war hiding period, away. period peace or yeah yeah it's, okay. it's during the plague in in uh in, in italy and it's basically a bunch of nobles escape but then there's a sort of class uprising uh, but it's an ensemble comedy with incredible tony hales in it zazio mamet like um, wow. karen gill who is in i may uh, i may destroy you tanya yeah. from sex education it's got a really incredible cast uh Saoirse monica jackson from dairy girls it's got this incredible cast of like tried and tested comedy dramatic performers so i'm absolutely terrified um but with you're this, gonna crush it man don't even, yeah i yeah i have to believe i have to separate myself from that and just focus on what my character is doing but it's a bit of a it's a, i'm sort of a little bit out of my comfort zone with it i'm playing a, another sort of like relatively cocky charming character who's a bit of a sort of uh an aesthetic aesthetically pleasing role and in, in amongst these other characters, but he's quite flawed and I like playing flawed characters. He's not perfect. Um, and it's going to be a struggle, but it, again, it's pushing the envelope. It's, it's new. It's, and then, you know, I think after that, I would love to just do something more character, more singular character base, like yeah. an indie film of some sort where I get to really explore being one character who, who has to go through a multiple multiple emotions and um, emotional states because you know well I, I think it's probably in terms of method and my and my process and these things I, I just feel like I, ha I have this um, ability to emote on screen at a very basic level that people have identified and I don't really know how to to define that as a process but I seem to have the instincts to do it. And I just want to refine that as much as possible and, and test that by, by playing characters where I don't have to just be one note and where I can move through emotional states. And, and that is what is interesting to me about performance and, and acting is, is being someone on screen that an audience gets to watch and feel what they're feeling without them having to necessarily say anything 
And that's a complicated line to toe because you can't be overly performative because then it feels unreal, but you can't be, you can't be too real because a lot of the time we don't play emotion on our faces. You know, we say things. And so I'm really, I, that's what really excites me is, is, is using your body as a tool to emote really is how I see acting. Well, that's so beautiful. And I totally agree with everything you just said. And I'm really excited for all these wonderful things coming and and few final questions here. You know, obviously you had this incredible directing career. Is that something you see coming back and and maybe doing a feature, you know, of whether you're in it or not, you know, is that, is that an impulse? Absolutely. I'm actually writing a movie right now with a friend of mine who's a director from back when my directing days is incredibly talented. And that's going to be this amazing sort of period hopefully if it all comes together first world war period so i'm writing that with him and producing and i will be in it amazing so that's me being behind the camera again and hopefully telling a story that no one's seen before um i'm also trying to write a movie as well that would be a vehicle for me just because i think it'd be a good thing to do you um, have to it's what yeah. i'm doing too you know yeah, that's the gonna, only control we have you know you gotta write what you know right yeah, and write, yeah. write what you think you can do well um and so you know that, that's a healthy practice to do but I love directing. I love being back behind the camera. And there's a thrill that comes from crafting something with so many, like, you know, it, 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 so many moving parts, <laughs> you know, so many technically visual things and human things that you have to orchestrate. And then it, it sort of this ginormous thing gets concentrated down onto a 2D <laughs> screen. Yeah. And it's responsible for making you feel stuff. There's a huge thrill to doing that. And I, I want to hundred percent refine that and go back to it because I, I think I am a good director. I, I found myself doing stuff that I wasn't comfortable with. And this felt like a way to uh, amplify who I was to the world as a, as much as I loathe to say it, a brand, yeah. but it's more just like, you know, I, I, I can tell stories as a collaborator, whether I'm helping perform them or whether I'm writing them or whether I'm directing them. And I have to build myself up in that way. And I've done it via acting but absolutely absolutely want to get back back behind the camera oh man well you're on this righteous path and i'm proud of you and i hope you know one day we get a chance to work together because you're doing incredible work and you know i love your vision for and 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 the manifestation of all the things that you're making happen which brings me to my final question and and you know i have so much respect for how you've been able to manifest everything but for those actors out there not just the british ones but mm-hmm. you know that didn't get a chance or perhaps can't afford you know a, a, an amazing drama school and you know but do have these incredible life experiences and have a lot to offer but you know they're having a hard time getting taken seriously by the business any mm-hmm. words of wisdom you might have for them create make as much as you can i mean we live in a world now where you can make relatively attractive and good looking things on your phone. And we're, a lot of us are lucky enough to have access to that. I know it's hard because film requires equipment, but but all, all I've ever done is make stuff to refine how, and a lot of it's been terrible. And that's the beauty of creating things is that they're going to be, some of them are going to be terrible and some of them are going to be good. You know, there are very few auteurs out there who just have a constant hit record of perfection. And I'm sure they have things that they would never show the world, but make stuff. And if you want to be an actor, you know, I, the best thing that made the, the thing that made me a better actor was being a director. It gave me all this technical knowledge behind the camera and how a film set and a, and a TV set works. And that is essential to knowing how to be an actor because there's no real guidance in that way. You have to learn that. So, you know, pick up a camera, write stuff that, you know, shoot it, learn to edit it, learn how your performance can be crafted and, 
And, you know, largely you can do that by yourself, even if it's just for you. It's amazing how you can sit there for like six months and just wait for the right part to come along. But if you're not, if in that six months, you know, write a part for yourself that you like or make, you know, routes to people who also like to to write and and direct and offer yourself as a a resource to be and stuff, you know chase chase the ability to do it if you can in any way shape or form or or, you know get friends together and other actors that you know and just act with them i remember in lockdown there was a a, uh we were very starved of the ability to work because it's such a desperate thing and then a great actor a friend of mine called ed pigner who um who lives in toronto now but he and bessie carter who's in bridgerton um Hmm. another friend of mine joe bannister um basically a bunch of us all got thrown into a WhatsApp group and there was a play by uh, a play called Constellations. Uh, um, Nick Payne, one of my favorite Payne, writers. Yeah. And yeah. we decided to just make that play <laughs> as a Zoom <laughs> call. So we divided all the scenes up. I it, saw it, that. Produ- I, I lo- I, holy shit, I saw that. That's incredible work, man. I, yeah, I love that piece. I, I saw Jake too. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, yeah. yeah oh, that was an amazing performance. Yeah. I mean, I, we never actually released ours into the public and we should probably put it out there it's been so long now but it, the the very practice of doing it was incredible and it was you know free for us obviously you have to be lucky enough to have access to zoom and a computer if you have all those things but it, I, we were picking up plays and that you know that that play has two people in it um and so, we so many juicy different universes circumstances exactly. million so ways we, you can play it you know yeah so we yeah. i think we, we had like 20 pairs of people and each pair was you know and i was paired, paired with another male actor and it, it didn't really matter what gender was or anything it was just like you are i can't remember the characters now <laughs> one is uh i can't remember what they're called god it's been so long but yeah you know one is a man one is a woman but it, it didn't really matter it was just like here's one person here's one person yeah you're living experience and there's multiple timelines and you get four of these scenes everyone gets four of the scenes of this play mm-hmm. and then you meet the person you get on zoom and you just fucking act and it's zoom it's it's, it's like theater it's, you don't get to edit it you just have yeah. to nail that scene and then we threw all that into an edit and edited it together and it's this weird piece it's probably not very pacey because it's on zoom and it's a bit boring but it it was a reason for us to be our to do our jobs and it and it's it's that it's like it's it's working it's it's putting yourself out there and finding ways that you can work because it means you're refining your abilities and you're refining your style and who you are as an actor. And you're not hedging all of that on just one audition. Yeah. Um, and then any, any of that might get noticed, you know, any, any of the, any one of those things might be an inroad to somebody else who could work with you or could help you do this. Or, you know, it's, it's, it's a creative industry and we should think of ourselves as extensions of this network wow. of people. Yeah. To just, just make stuff if you can. Yeah. That's my advice. Beautiful interview, man. Thank you for opening up and, and telling me about your journey and, and everyone and all the wonderful nuggets of wisdom you dropped. And I'm really excited for you. And, and dude, you get to go to Rome. I hope you have the best time. And, and, and if you're ever in New York city, look me up, let's grab a cup of coffee and let's get a project going. I love coffee and I love New York. So I will yeah. I will be doing that if I can get there. Come, come visit me, and, and and hey, come back when the other projects come out. I'm really proud of you, brother. You're doing so much excellent work, and and you're just getting started. So keep Thank going, you, man. I'm, I'm sincerely very proud of you. That means a lot. Really. If you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.